0: Welcome to Sweet Bitter, a podcast where we investigate the truth and controversy surrounding Sappho, her life, the Isle of Lesbos, and her relevance today. We're your hosts, Ellie Brigida. And Lisa Charlotte. This episode, we're going to be talking about Sappho on stage. (laughs) We've previously discussed Jane Montgomery Griffith's play, Sappho and Nine Fragments, and this episode, we're going to speak with some other performers who have played Sappho herself or have been inspired by Sappho.
1: As we do each episode, we're going to start with one of Sappho's fragments, chosen by our resident poet, Elise. Stay tuned until the end of the episode to hear our own version of the
2: poem as a song. Hello, Elise. Hi, y'all. What poem do you have for us? I'm so excited. I've got a real short one for you, but it's really nice. It's uh, I'm going to read Diane Rayer's translation of Sappho's Fragment 118. Come, divine liar, speak to me and sing. Beautiful.
0: <laughs>
2: I love it. Absolutely. And why did you choose this particular poem for this episode? Well, today's episode, like you mentioned, is about performances of Sappho. And I liked this poem for this episode because it... It's kind of Sappho like reflecting on how she herself is a performer. She's talking to her lyre, talking to her instrument, And in the translations, Diane mentions in the notes that we get this poem quoted by a Greek rhetorician named Hermogenes from the second century CE. And he quotes the fragment and says that Sappho addresses her liar and then her liar answers. So we don't have the response from her liar, but it sounds like this was a dialogue poem where Sappho talks and then her liar speaks back, which is really cool to imagine. Ellie, I know that you're
1: so good at inserting, like, what you think would happen with Sappho. So what do you think that the liar says back to her? <gasps> Oh, my God. What does the liar say back to Sappho?
0: I feel like, oh, God, why do I, like, want to go sexual? I'm like, I feel Go the sexual! The liar's, like, yeah. strum like, me, Sappho. Yeah. Like, oh, I mean, yeah. feel you know, those fingers, you oh know, like my that's... God. <laughs>
2: Might, I don't know,
0: or pick or plectrum, you know, even if that's not even the plectrum on me,
2: (laughs) even if that's not what the liar would actually say, it's what Sappho would say the liar would say
0: (laughs) exactly. The liar's like, change my strings, please. (laughs) Yeah, the liar's like, I never said that to you, I don't know why you would write that. We've gone over this many times, I don't like it when you talk to me like that.
2: It's like, you know, modern workplace sexual harassment. It's very bad. It's like, you can't just talk to your liar that way. It's not good, children. It's not good. I definitely, it does inspire me though. The next time I, you know, get up on stage, if we're ever allowed to do that again and play my guitar, I want to just like look at it and be like, come divine guitar, speak to me and sing. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, it feels very much
0: like, um, what is it? Come to me, my angel of music. Yeah, (laughs) phantom.
1: We were wow. always able to bring it back to musical theatre.
0: Always. Did you know I'm writing and starring in an original Oh, my movie? God, Ellie, <laughs> tell me more. <laughs>
2: I first time hearing about this. Is your guitar a character with a speaking role? It It
1: is. And on that note, thank you so much, Elise, but we'd best be getting on with the episode. (laughs) Thanks for having me, guys. Bye.
0: You've already heard from Jane Montgomery Griffiths and a bit from her play Sappho and Nine Fragments on previous episodes. Here's a little more background on how she wrote the play.
3: So, out of the blue, I got a request to write a one woman show about Sappho for a quite well known TV actor. And I hadn't written anything before, so I demurred and said, no, this isn't for me. But the producer was incredibly persistent, and I'm extremely grateful retrospectively for her persistence. So, uh, in four weeks, I had to write a one woman show, round about 90 minutes, for this quite well known actor. Now, unfortunately, the actress who was penciled to play her then got a TV role. And so it went to another actress who said the play was absolutely unactable. And so at this stage, we had advanced bookings. We had interviews on the radio with quite popular shows. And so the producer said to me, look, you used to be an actress, why don't you play her? I found myself cursing the fact that I had written a 90 minute monologue because of course now I had to uh, learn the thing. Look, I have to start off by saying it is incredibly difficult to even conceive how to write a play about Sappho because she is nothing but gaps. You know, we know that there were originally nine volumes of her work. Now we have just over a 100 poems in fragmented form and only a handful of complete poems. And we know nothing about her life story apart from really, really spurious footnotes in history. Writing a play about her was incredibly difficult initially. But then I started to weave together as many of her fragments as I could. By now I could read Sappho in ancient Greek. So I was working on my own translations and I decided to do sort of a jazz riff between Sappho, who was a timeless character, and a contemporary version of Sappho's probably. Well, look, this is hard. From what we have, it seems as though this young woman called Attis with Sappho's um, great love. But again, you know, we only have four poems that mention her name out of nine volumes of poetry. So who knows? but I decided to make Attis a contemporary young woman really, I just drew on my experience as a young actor. So we had parallel stories. That's the nine fragments. Every odd fragment was Sappho analysing the way that she's been used and abused over the millennia. And every even fragment was the story of this young actress falling in love with a great grand dame of the theatre. About 30 to 40% of the entire play was comprised of Actually, Sappho's fragments, but woven surreptitiously into the narrative. Anyway, so that was the play. It was a big hit. It was picked up by a professional theatre company in Melbourne called Malthouse Theatre. So then it had an entirely new production, and again, I was playing the, the character. So from then on, it's gone on to a production in Poland, a production around the UK and Canada. It's been done on the radio. So it's a, it's a funny old beast. It sort of developed from nothing but a very persistent producer forcing me to do something I have no interest (laughs) in to being something which, frankly, has shaped my entire professional career, so I'm very grateful to Sappho.
0: Earlier in the year, Elise and I had the pleasure of speaking to Jade Esteban Estrada, who wrote Icons, The Lesbian and Gay History of the World, Volume 1, in 2002, and performed it across the country. Jade told us a little bit about how he came up with the idea for the show. He had come across Sappho's work after a bad breakup and fell in love with her poetry. Icons features Sappho as well as other key queer figures from history like Oscar Wilde and Alice B. Toklas. During our interview, we were lucky enough to hear Jade perform a bit from the play as Sappho.
4: Don't you know who I am? Maybe you don't recognize me. I lived on the Isle of Lesbos. History calls me the first lesbian. My name is Sappho, and Plato called me the 10th Muse.
1: I just have the visual of Jade performing as he did at our live event. <laughs> With as the beautiful Sappho, as the beautiful with the beautiful wig and all. it was amazing. <laughs> it's so incredible,
0: and Jade truly channels Sappho. Really, so beautiful. When we talked to Jade, he told us a little bit more about what playing Sappho meant to him.
4: It was literally like having six kids and going, "All my kids are great, but <laughs> but your firstborn is always the the one that's that resonate, you know." I would like, even before the show, putting Sappho's lashes on and whatever, I'd be like, you know, screw everybody. I freaking love Sappho. (laughs) I I have a memory of so much calm when I become her. I could be like, we didn't have a good light rehearsal or this guy doesn't have an updated script or uh, people are still coming in the house because she's first, right? So if people are gonna be late, they're gonna run into her song or her intro. But when I become her, there's rhythm, there's rhythm in her speech and there's peace and there's the softness. I always felt immense calm when I became Sappho. And I am, if I were to plop dead right now, I am so grateful for the privilege of being able to surrender my voice and my body and my creativity so that she can come and live in me for a little while.
1: I mean, Sappho is everybody's favorite, no? Yeah, of course. Sappho's your favorite, Jade. <laughs>
0: I love, I mean, when we interviewed Jade, it is so interesting to see him transform and become Sappho. You can feel the comfortableness, you can feel the calm, you can feel, like he said, you can feel how grateful he is to channel her. And I just think it's beautiful. And other people did as well. The show got great reviews, and Jade later added Volumes 2 and 3, and it made a huge impact on each audience who saw it.
4: I have always seen myself, particularly in this work, as a channel, as utilizing what I believe my greatest gift is to tell stories through a facility Then, thank God in heaven, I had the privilege of, of having good training I didn't know what it was. We never, none of the people in my class knew what we were going to do in our show business careers. But I feel so grateful that I happened to come of age at a time where gay liberation was on the rise, Latino visibility was having a resurgence, and I was hungry to do something interesting to me. And what I found was hey, I really identify with Sappho or Oscar Wilde or Harvey Milk so much. That I can surrender all of me. I can erase myself completely and become this woman who had this idea so long ago and give myself to her completely. But I always loved submitting myself completely to the people I was honoring. I thought that my my most important goal was to let these people walk out of this theater having sat down with them and had a conversation in hopes that there could be some kind of understanding.
0: I love what Jade says here, and I think it's why it's so important we do this episode on Sappho on stage, because there is this like conversation that the performers have with an audience that can bring Sappho and all of these other historical figures into our mainstream consciousness. It's where theater and art is where most people interact with history besides in a history classroom.
1: Yeah, it's super important. And it's the same reason we're doing this podcast, right? Just generally, it's because, you know, we can go and find information on Sappho, but like we're trying to bring her to life in this podcast and all of these amazing people are trying to bring her to life on stage, including Maya Herbsman and Amy Cesara, who are working on a new play about Sappho. Amy is a playwright, poet, and educator. And Maya is the director. So we'll hear from Maya first.
5: And so in the winter of 2018, we had this festival that was really sort of dedicated to exploration and we were doing different play readings. And, uh, I was looking for a play to read that would be in the public domain so we could use it and wouldn't have to worry about rights. And that was written by a woman because so many classics that we're familiar with are are written by men. And, Completely to my surprise and delight, I stumbled across this play called Sappho, A Tragedy in Five Acts, (laughs) written by Estelle B. Lewis. Obviously, as a queer person, I was familiar with Sappho, though not deeply. And so, of course, was really excited about the chance to read the play. And so we got a group of actors together, had a couple folks in the room, and we read this play. And while it was really great that it was about Sappho... With all of respect to Estelby Lewis, it was a bit of a bummer. It was really straightwashed. Most of her queerness was completely sidestepped. It was just riddled with misogyny and felt deeply problematic to me, but I was still so excited about the possibility. And so, From there, we talked as a company and decided this was a piece we were interested in moving forward with. And we partnered with an organization in San Francisco called the Queer Cultural Center and asked if they knew anyone, any playwrights who might be a good fit for this type of project. And they recommended Amy to us. And so Amy and I met And then we kept meeting. We decided to embark together on this multi-year development process Mm -hmm. of working from Estelle B. Lewis's play, but really creating something totally new Mm -hmm. and different, driven by our own interests and our own identities as uh, brown queer women.
6: And one of the things I was really struck with was that Sappho's original poetry was not in there. Also in addition to all of the sort of questionable features that um, that choice was interesting as well as the choice which I know that you at Sweet Bitter are very familiar with the the choice to go along with the myth of her throwing herself off of the cliff over a man was chosen as a narrative important narrative and I was like where is the where's her where are her girlfriends or where are her loves in this I think that Maya and I were on the same page about like she was not troubled by my difficulty with, you know, just approaching the text like, why this? You know, and I work with literature all the time. So I was like, I could I'm going to get through this. I'm going to find what is what inspires me about this. But what I think really inspired me was Sappho, Sappho's life and Sappho's story and also this idea of a timeless poet you know, who is a female who over centuries has continued to be quoted and named. And, you know, despite the, the little that we have of her actual language that we know that she was famous, we know that she influenced a lot of people and became, you know, the material for a lot of people's imaginations when we went forward with the process, I said, can we do this? And can we do this? Like, can we change a lot of features? And Maya was games, And, you know, definitely we were interested in allowing her to be gay, you know, allowing her to have her loves. You know, she talks about her loves and it's like so essential that she has her loves.
1: Make Sapphire gay again. Yes. (laughs) thank you amy and maya
0: you beautiful beautiful souls
1: but i mean are we surprised
0: no (laughs) not surprised at all knowing what we know from this podcast wow sappho was straight washed so surprised to hear these things (laughs) but we're very very happy that maya and amy are rewriting maya and amy recently hosted a zoom performance of an excerpt from the play with three actors One plays Sappho as a woman of color slam poet who's talking back to Estelle Lewis, the original playwright behind Sappho, A Tragedy in Five Acts, and also talking with Malaya, a Filipina playwright who's writing a new interpretation of her. Here's a brief clip from a recent Zoom reading of the play featuring Tiara Allen as Sappho. They want me to be theirs, but theirs I cannot be. A tragic poet who kills herself over a boy? For a woman, I could be driven over a cliff, I guess. But I have too much to live for. I am breaking the bounds of spoken word, of music, of art. I am a mother, a lover, a dancer, a singer, a skilled musician. I am the 10th muse, goddammit! I'm already immortal. You playwrights stop making me into your plaything.
6: All of my writing has a consciousness around context and representation and social justice, you know, to kind of throw a bunch of different themes around. But I definitely was asking, why now? What is it about Sappho now, today? You know, when we were in the midst of the pandemic and I was digging in with researching about Sappho, I also was haunted by knowing that representation is important right now. And, you know, the resurgence of Black Lives Matter with George Floyd's killing and Breonna Taylor. And so some of that made its way into my free writing and into my poetry Well, I felt like I don't know if we want to see another Sappho that is just another try on Sappho from Greece. You know, I feel like I want to write a character that I want to see who is a strong poet, who is a mother, who is aging, who's a woman of color. A lot of these are me talking about myself, in fact, so I could relate to many features. And I didn't see discussion of her as a mother there is nothing about her being a mother in the Estelle Lewis play and very little when we talk about the mythology of Sappho as a mother. I'm a, a mother of a toddler now. It doesn't jive with the sexiness of <laughs> I think people don't can't have a hard time equating. I remember before I had my child, I, I was a lot more into my own personal persona as a performer because I'm also a was a spoken word performer. And, you know, I could relate to this performance element of the character that I'm writing of Sappho and Sappho, why can't we reconcile her mothering with her being this poet who wrote erotic and beautiful poems, but also wrote a lot of other kinds of poems, you know, about life and wrote about her daughter. Also, why can't we reconcile her age and me being someone in my forties, you know, outing my age, also women experience, feeling more invisible as we get older and that we're not allowed to be those out in the public eye people. So I really wanted to see somebody that I don't get to see in Sappho. And then also, obviously, her queer relationships, her loves. And why does it have to be either she's gay or either she's actually straight? Or, you know, what is bisexuality? That's another conversation that Maya and I had. We don't see representation in popular media or in theater that accurately can represent what that is and what does that mean I felt that she loved and was enamored and was consumed by her female loves and maybe she had these relations with men you know she had a daughter you know what you know but that you know what what I'm exploring that you know it doesn't have to mean either or or she was you know living a lie or you know all of the dramatic projections that we tend to put upon people who have loved different genders
1: We don't have to choose. (laughs) Yes, Amy, yes.
0: This entire episode is just Lisa screaming into her microphone. I'm sorry Um, for the editing. (laughs) But I do, I mean, I love what Amy's saying there. And we have had listeners who have reached out and said, as a bisexual woman, as a part of this queer community that feels underrepresented or feels like ignored or erased that we as a podcast are saying, we don't know if Sappho was a lesbian because we Do not. We we know she was a
1: lesbian, like a capital L lesbian. But it doesn't even (laughs) exist. And I think, like, this conversation is still happening all the time. And we get notes from people online saying that they don't feel like they have a right to participate in Sappho, in the podcast. They're like, "Oh, I'm bisexual, but," and I'm like, "What do you mean, but?" Yeah, (laughs) one of the hosts is bisexual. This is your story too. And you know, bisexual is like what the biggest part of the LGBTQ. Like, it's the it's the most people and they're so excluded so i feel so strongly about this (laughs) (laughs) but as you should as you should but it's really it's really great and it's been really great diving into sappho and i hope that our bisexual listeners now have an arsenal to like go in and have these conversations with people who would use sappho's name to exclude them in the i guess sapphic community amy has been finding a lot of inspiration in the fact that sappho was also from an island like her Just a quick note, she does mention the recent terrorist attack in Atlanta in the upcoming clip.
6: What just happened in Atlanta is important to to recognize as part of the context of the world that we're writing into and putting work into. I cannot ignore what's happening in the world. What happens, you know... the the fetishization of women's bodies, of Asian women's bodies, of, you know, the way that it's impacted women of color, all of the current events regarding race and gender and violence and how people have been dehumanized. I think it's just very important to recognize as part of our context and what we produce work into. You know, I was struck with, you know, Lesbos is an island and, you know, I did research on Lesbos itself and saw the BBC documentary and got to see it I thought was like a you know really helpful to get grounded and you know my familiarity with islands in terms of my own other writing projects and my interests as an an educator are islands that have been colonized and have undergone conquest which islands have tended to be over time Then my most familiar backgrounds would be the Philippines and Cuba particularly are two island locations that are in the mix but I definitely found it important for me you know in terms of my subject matter is to is I'm all interested in the colonization of islands the tendency for people to in terms of through the gaze of the colonizer and I think there's some relation that's with how we've seen Sappho exoticized and and you know her story keeps being rewritten her identity keeps being changed there's something that's there that i'm I'm exploring being somebody who myself I'm Filipino I've written a lot about the ways in which Filipinos were seen and treated as savage, as uncivilized. And then you can look at some parallels with other island cultures as well, sort of the, the place that is on all of our imagination, you know, what has happened to many islands
0: Maya and Amy's plan is to start rehearsals for their show in December 2021 or January 2022 and have it start running in January or February 2022. So get your plane tickets to San Francisco now. I know I will be. Be right back. (laughs) Just booking my tickets.
1: While Lisa's getting those plane tickets, we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. We spoke to Vanessa Stovall, an independent scholar and musician. She first got interested in the classics by watching Sailor Moon. Me too, and when I played Sailor Moon in the schoolyard. (laughs) (laughs) Ellie, you were always just so gay. And then she (laughs) discovered Sappho in middle school after reading Homer and not really digging his treatment of Helen. Same. Same.
7: So I guess that was the other thing that drew me to Sappho, was figuring out she was a lyre player. Because at that point in middle school, I'd already been playing the harp for two or three years. So I was just like, oh, cool. Like, you know, this is my predecessor, like this ancient, like harpist. Great. Perfect. I didn't even realize like a lot of her like queer identity. I was just like, excellent. Like my musical, like master. This is perfect. I've been a professional harpist since pretty much then being a teenager. That's what I did for being able to afford Christmas presents for the fam, a long history with classical music, then kind of stopped in undergrad because I was studying romanticism actually for a year. I like went on this whole romantic bent and that was a lot of fun. But also I just like disagreed with a lot of the like big 19th century writers and like philosophers, but also a lot of what they had to say about music and other things. And it was kind of frustrating. i like then kind of had a slump in the musical area for myself. And it wasn't till like I was finished with college. I got more into the folk scene, just like around the town I lived. Um, which was very ironically called Olympia. Uh, I went to college at Evergreen State in Olympia, Washington. Getting more into, like, the folk, blues, punk scene there, I was just like, oh, yeah, like, right, like, I can play folk harp now. I can do, like, all these different types of things. And then I interrupted that to go to grad school <laughs> at Columbia. Um, but it was actually my first year. I was very bored, and I was just like, "What? what is there? Where is interest for me? What can I do? And I was very lucky that I just happened to sit in on a talk that... John Franklin was doing at University of Vermont, who studies the ancient lyre and its whole history. And he was giving a performance of both some of Sappho, but then also some of his uh, lyrics from uh, Euripides' Helen that he had written stuff for. And I was just like, oh this is great. Like, I love this. But then I started asking him a bunch of questions about like more folk harp techniques or like other ways in which he could have integrated that. And he was just like, you should play the lyre. He ended up doing a lyre camp in Tarquinia uh, in summer of 2019. There's just this group called Yerterpe, which is named after uh the muse of music. But for Sappho herself, like, I just think it's like, great. She's very easy uh, to sing along to. She does a lot of fun stuff with her meter that's sort of easy to just sort of apply your own uh, melodies to and your own harmonies and stuff. It reminds me a lot of the times of like, I guess like the queer like version of like, you know, that stereotypical like guy on campus who would always be playing like Wonderwall (laughs) like with his guitar. There's just something like nice about just being able to just sort of like lie down lays like strum out some chords and just be like you know i'm sad someone looked really fine the other day she had flowers in her hair i am depressed and i'm like oh universal i love this
0: i'm trying so hard not to do like this one time at liar camp um
1: (laughs) i also am like those stories would be way more fun but also kind of similar (laughs) to alice and hannigan's let's be real yes I was
0: like, God damn it, Mom, why didn't you send me to Liar Camp? (laughs) No, I love you, Mom. It's okay. (laughs) Did you ever go to theater camp or like a music camp, Lisa?
1: Camps like that aren't really so much of a thing in Australia. We do this thing where we stay with our parents over the summer (laughs) because our parents Mm. actually get holidays. I know these are all foreign concepts in America where you just send your kids away to camp and just like continue to work. But um, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) such a concept no well for me it was
0: my mom was a stay-at-home mom so she was always home with us so for Mm. me camp was like a luxury when I was in high school like I paid for it myself with the money that I had made from working at this like fast food burger place because I was like I just really want to go to theater camp and so I like paid to go to theater camp for two weeks and I vividly remember a gay theater boy playing Wonderwall on the steps. (laughs) It was a theater camp at Fordham University in New York. So that was, that's bringing back memories, Vanessa.
1: Bringing back memories. I mean, I'm just listening to those words, which is, I'm sad. Someone looked fine the other day. I'm depressed. And I just imagine you singing them, Ellie. Me just just
0: being you. you. Everyone, listen. (laughs) I'm sad. (laughs) Yeah, Vanessa really speaks to my soul. Vanessa also told us some really cool things about the importance of vowels in ancient Greek song. Oh, Ellie. Ellie, you live I'm, for this. I truly do. Hit me with those vowels, Vanessa.
7: Yeah, there's a lot of this like idea of vowels uh, sort of like holding a lot of the sounds of the gods. A lot of the like intonations of calling out to the gods can bring in a lot of different types of sounds. And like, we hear that with a lot of the words like aie, which is forever, you know, or the words for singing, aiden or aidos for the singer. And so there is this lot of like stretching uh, and sort of theorizing about like what the vowels represent. And that was something I really loved as I was writing at the start of the pandemic, because like, especially the Greek alphabet, like it starts and ends in these like very big vowel sounds. I want to play with that, especially thinking about like consonants and how those come to be and how much like Consonants and vowels also play and stick with our memories in different ways. And I think that's like a very key point in music. We love our lyrics. We love the words that like they can give us. But there's also sort of this concept of the voice and being able to speak with that voice and with that authority. And I think that often comes from vowels in a lot of ways. Like I sort of said in the piece, our first sounds are vowels. We don't, you know, pop out just like enunciating all of these different things because we don't know language yet. Uh, vowels are very, you know... We hear vowels from other animals. We hear vowels from all around the natural world. And so I think there's also this idea, this broader sort of concept of sympathy. Yeah, that's what the Stoics always believe. This sort of concept of uh, sympathy, which a lot of folks don't like looking at when they talk about the Stoics, because I think a lot of folks think of it as like very woo-woo-y in different ways. But like, no, the Stoics believed in this like idea of cosmic sympathy that we all sort of feel together and understand each other in different ways. And so I think vowels are a very big, key, and central part of that. Um, I think that also goes back to, like, a lot of, like, more ancient Greek religious ideas, too, about, like, being more connected with nature makes you more connected with the gods. But also in I think that's like one of the main appeals of the owloss, the instrument that's directly opposite of like the lyre and the kithra and barbaton the owloss is like known as the mourning instrument it's the instrument of lamentation it's the instrument that is also at times supposed to sound a lot like a woman wailing and so it's you have this like long drawn out it's like a very sad bagpipe is sort of the best way i would describe its sound but it's awesome i love it whereas you have like the lyre with all of its like lovely fine shadings and like articulation. So I think there's an interesting element of sort of vowels and consonants that also plays in the instruments themselves and how we respond to them.
0: It was just making me think about acapella because, you know, like I've done acapella for my whole life. No. When you arrange an acapella song, if you want it to be quiet, you use an an M, like mm. Mm-hmm. If you want it to be like a little louder, you use an ooh. And the ahs is an acapella. Like that's when you do like the big end chorus and you have everyone on like a high chord, like ah. Like so <laughs> I completely,
1: <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. Yeah.
0: It makes yes. a lot of sense to me. You know, the Greeks have been doing it forever. And we're just copying the Greeks, you know?
1: Completely. And now you me can, arra- you can add arranging. this to your co- gerund conversation. Exactly. <laughs> me arranging
0: a Beyonce song is just, you know, the same as... You're exactly, the same. Ah exactly the same. an in a Greek
1: song. So Vanessa told us this beautiful story about writing a poem using a Sappho translation for her best friend.
7: One of my closest friends. whose name is Forever Moon. They're great. They're amazing. They're a sex educator in Washington State. And for a time, right, as I was sort of coming into my own queer identity in college, uh, Forever and I started living together. We were just roommates. We weren't really friends before then. We just sort of knew each other. And then I was TAing for a classics course, actually, at Evergreen that got to go abroad. And so I was very excited to sort of, like, go out and be uh, in Greece and Italy for the first time and really learning more. And I've been learning ancient Greek at this point, too, And just really getting to, like, soak in, like, a lot of what I loved studying. I remember just, like, thinking and feeling of just, like, wow, I really miss this person that I live with, which I did not expect. And, like, dang. And so while I was there, while we were on the island of Crete, we did a pottery workshop. And we were able to just use a lot of, like, different molds of a lot of, like, Minoan artifacts and vases to imprint our own, like, pieces So I made Forever a little moon pendant and on the back of it, I had asked the potter how to say forever in modern Greek because I didn't know. And so I was like, cool. OK, yeah, nice. Like Ponta, Ever, like Gia. Yeah. I was like, I guess that means four. I don't know modern Greek. I should. And so I carved that sort of into the back for them. And I made it in the shape of Crescent Moon since their last name is Moon. But I felt really awkward about it because <laughs> I was like, this is weird. Like, let me just give you uh, this weird like little pendant <laughs> I made. I felt awkward until I got back home finally and was, like, unpacking my things. And they just, like, kind of kicked my door open and was just like, hi, don't leave again. We're friends now. And I was like, oh, cool. Dope. Here. I made you a pendant. And so we became a lot, lot closer.
1: This is how I behave with friends
0: you're like I love you so much here's a pendant how many gifts have I sent you you have gotten so many (laughs) gifts from you it's great I mean as a friend of yours it's nice it's a nice (laughs) level of intimacy to. and I feel like also like as queer women or just women in general I always like love being like super intimate with my friends
1: yeah I just when she was telling this story I was just like oh my god I feel so seen so great (laughs) other people do awkward shit too I love it (laughs)
7: And so I got this idea to write or rewrite a Sappho poem and just present it live without telling them, <laughs> which was a fun thing. And so I wrote uh, this poem called Sappho Fragment 45 with an addendum that just took Fragment 45, which is very short; it's just three words: "As <laughs> theletumes." And then the addendum was I just put "gia panta" on it, so it's this like very ancient Aeolic Greek and this modern Greek just mashed up together. And then I took those five words and each five of them, I defined them in different ways to just very slowly like sort of hook in and talk about this arc of like Forever and I as friendship growing and like slowly becoming one.
1: So Ellie, I know I've sent you all these gifts, but I'm still waiting on your translation of one of Sappho's poems for me (laughs) interwoven with your own poem and a song, or maybe that's a job for Elise. I don't know.
3: Yeah, I'm like, I'll work Maybe you can like
1: collaborate this. on that together. I'm not sure. <laughs> Elise and I will pull it together. Thank It'll you. It'll be your, your
0: finale gift. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's just so beautiful. I love, I love friends. I love friendship. And I love this, like, beautiful, beautifully intimate thing between two people.
1: And I think it's, I think it's great for Sappho too, because it feels like, you know, of course some of the people Sappho wrote about were her lovers, but I think primarily like a lot of what Sappho wrote about was friendship and like that intimacy and it doesn't have to be about sex.
7: I got a really cool opportunity to be a part of an acoustic archaeology uh, exhibit in Berlin. But that's when I uh, composed the piece, A Lunar Tune, which was on my medium, which I have the long commentary and talked about. But it's a sequel to a Sappho Fragment 45 with an addendum, But which is why I had to write a commentary. So I was like, right. <laughs> I guess none of you guys knew or were present for this other poem that I wrote that was very long. But it was nice because I got to use a much more informed classical sort of perspective than I had in the past to talk about music and sort of space and my own philosophies around what I think tuning is and how it relates to life, but also just like friendship. And I finally got to end it with Sappho 34. I was like, my Greek's good enough now. All right, I can write this. So that's the long tale of it all. (laughs) Asteres men amphi kalan selanan, aps apu kryptoisi eidos. Opota plethoisa malista lampe arguria, which is stars around the blooming moon slip back their luminescing forms whenever in her fullness her light pours forth on the earth. Silvery.
0: What a beautiful way to wrap up this episode about Sappho and how Sappho can be performed. I just love this idea of the stars and the moon together. I'm trying not to do too much musical theater, but you know Stars in the Moon. I know. I, know
1: I was there. a <laughs> am man. Exactly. Yes. We were, um, we're there. Sorry, everybody. Yes. We're not sorry. You love this. We're not sorry. You're still here. It's episode 11. You're still here. <laughs> you're still here. <laughs> you know what you're in for. I just love
0: how there's so many different ways to interpret Sappho. There's so many ways to create art from Sappho. And Vanessa is one great example and all of the other performers and artists we've talked to in this episode and in episodes prior to this episode. It excites me that Sappho is still quite relevant today and can continue to share.
1: Yeah. And think about what's to come. We get a lot of visual art on our social media from people who have just like drawing Sappho or drawing things that that inspire them about Sappho. Unfortunately, it's hard for us to show you them on a podcast, but check us out on social media. We usually repost them. She just continues to inspire people. You know, 2,500 years later, it's amazing. Until next time, here's a taste of what's to come on Sweet Bitter.
5: It would be nice
7: for... Sappho to move beyond the stuffiness of classicist circles. Sorry, classicist, but with the main sort of like underlying hook of WAP, which is like there's some horrors in this house. Like I'm like, we see like finally the Hathira, they've come into like the Oikos, like the place they're not actually supposed to be. And so I think it's really empowering to see Aboriginal Australians
3: taking active control of what is such a a white elite tradition.
1: We cannot pretend like what we do is disconnected from today's world and that what we our disciplines are not colonial products. Thanks for listening to Sweet Bitter. Our final episode of season one will be released on the 22nd of April. We are also hosting a live season wrap up, which is going to be so much fun on the 24th of April featuring Kristen Russo from buffering the vampire slayer, Liv Albert from our very amazing holiday special. And let's talk about myths, baby, of course, Lee Pfeffer from history is gay and a performance on the liar from Vanessa Stovall, who you heard on this episode, you can purchase tickets online and we would love to see you there. As always, stick around until the end of the podcast to hear our original song for Fragment 118.
0: If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, rate and review us. It really helps, especially written reviews on Apple Podcasts. You can
1: also support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com sweetbitter. Thank you so much for our new patron this week, Lori. We're so grateful for your support. As always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at SweetBitterPod or contact us on our website, SweetBitterPodcast.com.
0: Sweet Bitter is an independent production by me, Ellie Brigida, Elise Knorr, and Lisa Charlotte. Our artwork is by Estella Illustrated. Music is by Lyron Rhapsody. A special thanks to Jade Esteban Estrada,
1: Maya Herbsman, Amy Cesara, and Vanessa Stovall for sharing their knowledge with us today. You can read more about our guests and where to find them on our website in the About section. You can read Vanessa's whole poem, A Lunar Tune, on Medium. We'll post a link in the show notes.
0: And now, fragment 118.
5: Come to f-